Hey, everybody. Forgot to say at the beginning of this episode, if you are interested in hearing a more in-depth rundown of the article that we're discussing with our interview guest today, go ahead and check out the feed for From Alpha to Omega, friend of the show. Um, there, our interview guest will be talking all about this piece in much more detail, and it'll be great. And go show them some love and enjoy the episode. You know, I'm doing so good. Uh, uh, I, you know, I'm just doing great. <laughs> We're all doing I'm a little great. Bit We're doing so well. <laughs> I'm coming in. I'm coming in a little bit hot. I'll be honest. Yeah. But yeah. Um, Dan, uh, one of the reasons I'm doing pretty well is because we just had a pretty awesome talk with a good friend of ours. Yeah, this is a great episode. I um, yeah, I can't wait for people to get into it or for to us engage. to get into it to engage. Um, so for the listener, we're just going to keep this introduction pretty short and sweet because we've got a lot to get to. Um, we spoke to our friend uh, Donal, who has recently written a piece um, on social object viability strategy, which is some very exciting stuff building off of ideas that Stafford Beer has. Um, you might know him as the guy who's writing the book with uh, Tom O'Brien, um, forthcoming as well on labor time strategy and cybernetics. Um, this article that we're going to be talking to him about is forthcoming from the brand new uh, journal, The Black Lamp, uh, which is very exciting. And Dan and I were able to have a look at it um, before it gets published, and it's some awesome stuff. So you're all going to want to look out for that. Um, and uh, yeah, I don't know. What what else is there to say on this one, Dan? I was just getting right into it. This was very refreshing. Yeah, other than to thank Donald for coming on and giving us his time. He didn't need to do that, and um, not <laughs> anybody does. And uh, we're always very grateful when people do. And um it was also a really enjoyable conversation to have, um, sort of like general discussion of uh, the VSM and uh, labor time planning. And then, as you say, something more uh, concretely directed toward his new article, which yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed reading and thank him for sharing with us ahead of time. I can't wait to see him print. Um, and yeah, I'm, I have renewed excitement for uh, Donald and Tom's book, um, updating uh, or expanding the Fundamental principles, principles, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Two of our old bugbears. <laughs> yeah. So uh, without further ado, this one's very good. And for the listener, I say I'll maybe a little bit more ado. Uh, this does mean that Dan and I are working on reading a book, as it usually does when we do an interview. It means that we're attempting to get through a book. So look forward to that one. Uh, hopefully soon. Although I've read two chapters and yeah, I've read one. <laughs> go and watch our recent, most recent live stream on YouTube if you want to have that anticipation spoiled by uh, yeah. us telling you what the book is. Oh yeah, exactly. Right at the end. If you'd, exactly. And if you'd also like to see us rank all of our readings, we do have a French tier, ladies and gentlemen. I think you're all going to enjoy that one. So without further ado, um, here we go. Interview with Donald. Let's go. Donald, thank you very much for coming on. Um, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about yourself, um, about what it is that you're studying, and um, yeah, just a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. Sure. So um, yeah, my name is Donald. I uh, I am from Dublin in Ireland, and uh, I live at the moment in Russia in Kazan City, where I am 
studying a master's degree at the Kazan National uh, Technical Research University. And uh, my degree is uh, engineering cybernetics. So, uh, yeah, so, and that's that's pretty much my background, but uh, I, I know you guys through the, through this whole milieu of like uh, cybernetic stuff and uh, labor time stuff and uh, accounting and all that kind of uh, discussions. So yeah, obviously I'm obviously on the left politically as well, I'm interested in these things. Your name tends to come up in a lot of value theory hell threads that I see on Twitter, <laughs> but <Right>. generally, generally <laughs> I would say you're one that is very uh, more so inquisitive. You're never, I, you never tend to be someone I've noticed that is like one of the people just screaming, being like, "What are you talking about? Value is created in the marketplace." Which, you know, <laughs> um, so I think let's get right into it. Um, Obviously, I think today we're going to be talking mainly about kind of like labor time calculation in the vein of the kind of Jan Appel group of international communists, um, fundamental principles stuff, um, and then a bit about cybernetics and then a bit about your own kind of um, original thinking on maybe like combining the two and um, a little bit about kind of where that's headed. Um, but I think maybe to start, if we discuss a little bit about the labor time calculation stuff, Dan and I have spoken about this kind of in depth. Um, at least we've talked about the fundamental principles book in depth. We've done about three episodes on that, um, trying to really get into the, into the kind of weeds about what it is that they're presenting as this, you know, positive proposal. So I guess my first question about that would be, what is it that when you read that book that kind of stood out to you and made it, you know, that made all of those ideas attractive, I suppose. Yeah. Like, uh, I guess, uh, just the fact that a lot of different things, um, hung together. So uh, I had a pretty naive idea about this. Uh, if anything I had in my background from the left, I was more thinking in terms of uh, before I read GIC or even started thinking of that kind of labor time stuff. You know, I, I came from a sort of point of view of thinking, well, you know, the, the, the Leninist type, what people think of as the Leninist type economy is it really from the, from the, the left point of view. I didn't really... I wouldn't have had any strong thoughts about anarchist stuff or syndicalist stuff or, you know, to me, it didn't seem really plausible and, uh, it didn't seem that interesting for me. So, um, you know, and you, you sort of come to hear when you're talking about that with people, you come to hear a lot of criticisms of it and a lot of people kind of saying, well, you know, it doesn't work in this way and that way. And there are these kind of problems that, that, that you can point to sort of um, sort of structural problems that that come to uh, that, that people point out about central planning and different things like that. So when I read this at first, you know, I suppose the, the main thing that stood that stood out to me was it bridged a big gap for me between hearing this stuff online because I heard it to some extent for people who were on the left communist side of things, you know, saying, well, you have to have this kind of abolition of value, the value form, saying, well, what's that, you know, and reading more into kind of um, a little bit of critique of the Gothic program. And in that, you kind of get a little idea of what Marx is thinking about. And in volume one, there are some things. And, uh, but there's a big gap there. You know, there's a bit, there's a, there seemed to be a big gap between that very idealized kind of idea and then the real world where you have all of these kind of big problems with, uh, you know, with how that maybe could actually really manifest itself. Um, how could a system reproduce itself when there's no, when, you know, producers are making things, but at the same time, like, how is it going to be possible for them to 
for you know for a dynamic economy to come out of this kind of very simple idea that Marx put forward, where there'd be labor tokens and uh, so we can get into it. But the GIC put forward a like much more detailed conception of of what Marx was talking about. So for me, when I read that, I thought, okay, you know, for the first time, something else looks plausible to me, and it looks plausible, uh, much more important than just being than just being plausible. It looks like for me, this is the basis for something that uh, deals with a lot of the problems that are inherent in in what we call actually existing socialism that was there, you know, in the 20th century. I, I think there are two things that I kind of want to talk about in terms of that book that I still kind of have questions about, because when you first read it, you're absolutely right. It's kind of just like, whoa, oh my God, this is insane. And to a certain extent, I'm still like, wow, this stuff is really like, it's really forward thinking, especially when you think about how long ago it was written and how prescient it was about the Soviet Union, all of this stuff. We've talked about this before. People don't want to hear us go on about it again. But um, first thing I kind of wanted to ask you about is the nature of kind of a transition um, from maybe capitalism to more of like a labor time accounting mode, a socialist mode. Because um, in that book, they kind of they kind of make it seem like it's pretty easy. You know what I mean? They kind of make it seem like at least in terms of switching the unit of the uh, switching the unit of account from like money to labor time tokens or calculation or whatever, they kind of, they bring up the example of like, well, you know, capitalists like shift money around or they change kind of like their currencies and stuff like that. And it kind of makes it seem a little bit simple. They definitely don't gloss over anything like a class war or anything like that. Like they're going to let, they come out and say at a certain point, like there will be force needed um, to a certain extent to try and get a lot of these other firms involved to, you know, to a certain percentage or whatever. But I'm kind of interested in your thoughts on how this transition happens. Will there need to be maybe a kind of need for short-term keeping markets around, or is that just kind of pure poison that will inevitably lead back to capitalist social relations? I'm kind of interested to know where your thinking has kind of um, gone on from that book uh, when it comes to a transition. Well, uh, one of the things you'll remember from the book is that they, they talk about they talk about a few a few very interesting things in terms of dynamics, you know. So they say, like, um, you know, that the the whole. So for people who don't know, there's like producers associations, right? And in order to take part in the socialist economy, in other words, like to get your input goods to actually make anything and get an income for yourself, and to, you know, for the whole thing to work from your perspective, you have to join this association. So when you join the association of producers, like, there's a whole bunch of things that are set in train that basically puts you into this socialist economy. So I think like that's a part of the transition where they're saying, I think the words they use are like, it's a force of negative persuasion, you know, that that for firms that are outside of the socialist economy in a place where the socialist economy is dominant, it's very difficult for for to run a capitalist firm because the things that you need are not accessible to you. Uh, because they're within this producers association that, that that has this its own internal dynamic with this like an average social production time price and so you know um there's so there's a whole kind of backstory to that that um, i'm kind of assuming that viewers know a little bit they may not but yeah so i think that's uh that's a part of it and then there's, there's a kind of positive dynamic as well you know where you would think uh and i think that you know a lot of it hinges on the idea that if it is a dynamic system and if it works and if people are attracted to it on the basis that it's non-exploitative and it's free in the sense that nobody's telling you what to produce, it's like there's this right of disposal, which we can get into, but it's a whole thing about having the having the right to produce, you know, 
according to your own um, your own intuition, the, the freedom that capitalist firms have today, in other words, uh, in terms of use values, in terms of, well, I think this would be good. We should, you know, we can try and make this. And then there's a system that, to regulate that. But so with that kind of positive aspect where you're no longer a wage laborer, you don't have to sell your labor on the labor market anymore. And on the other hand, you kind of need to take part in it because of all these negative things that would be there if you don't take part in it. The idea is that at least in a material sense, there's the, there are these kind of incentives built in for the transition to happen. Now, as far as the technical stuff of the transition, um, that's something we will be looking at in the book. So I don't want to. Uh, we have we have a few ideas on this, you know, but um, I don't want to uh, uh, just you know put them all out immediately because uh, uh, no one will buy the book. Right? No, yeah, but, you got to uh, buy the book. Right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, but. Uh, uh, no, I'm kidding. But but at the same time, it's it's not an easy question about um, about the transition. And there's a lot of there's a lot of unknowns, uh, especially as far as the unit of account stuff. Okay, so you have the labor. You know, you could see the labor tokens up to some point working in parallel. But there's, I think, the idea that Jan Appel was coming from because he had lived through this German revolution. He was coming from when he actually was writing this stuff when he was sitting in prison. He was saying to himself, "Well, you know, if we had had this." when we controlled all of these cities, because at the time, the council movement in Germany, they controlled like large cities, you know, uh, for, for a short time, but, um, you know, but it was really under the conditions of like a general strike. So the, they weren't produced, you know what I mean? It wasn't like a normal economy that they were running. It was more like everyone had walked out and the factories maybe were producing some essential things to keep people going, but there wasn't a real economy. There was no dynamic to, that could actually make it work, you know? So he was kind of saying, well, if we had this, could that have, could that have helped and could that have meant that people would just like kind of plug into this new economy and then it would take on an, its own uh, kind of life of its own you wouldn't need to not talk about nationalizations you would say why nationalization we've got this economy already working you know um we don't need to do what they did in russia for example it's, it's funny a lot of this just seems like a much more well thought out dan and i read the first volume of endnotes recently for the show and a lot of this just seems like a much more well thought out like communizer thing where it's just like you know the whole thing of like do the revolution otherwise the revolution won't happen the kind of like semi-tautology there it really seems to kind of go in parallel with a lot of that because it's like unless you actually have the conditions for a classless society growing from the first day then it doesn't seem like it's ever really going to happen and kind of what you're saying makes that seem actually not as kind of like, yeah, man, as it kind of seems to me, at least to be a little bit unfair in endnotes and to be a little bit more practical, I think. Yeah, I agree. And like, the other thing is, you need to have a way, and this is something we explore more in, in the book as well, you need to have a way for it to plug into <clears throat> what already exists, right? And and to be, and to become, like, you're not going to have a socialist economy that starts in one city or a few cities, and then you know, the whole world within a week and a half, you know, joins that system. So what, what you need is something that can supersede what exists at the moment, uh, that there are, you know, structurally very good things that people want to be part of it, and that sort of uh, makes it very difficult to for for the, the other firms in the economy to stay out of. So I think, yeah, you like, um, you don't want... Uh, my, my problem with a lot of the communizer stuff, I mean, I've, I have a lot of problems with it, but one of my problems with the communizer things is that, you know, it's it, it's too, uh, to me, focused on the idea of, you know, well, if you could if you could take some means of production and you could immediately start to produce, then 
you would be in a, a situation where you can where you can communize. To me, that's just like you have to say, well, where are the inputs coming from? You know, where's the you know, where's the dynamics here? Like how does it actually plug into things? And that's where the GIC, it seems to me, has this accounting scheme. Things like again, this factor of individual consumption, there's different things, but they have mechanisms whereby if you needed to plug in to this in order to in order for the thing to work from a nucleus all the way up to a big, you know, kind of level. Um, there are there are like uh, there are ways that it can that that can happen within that accounting scheme. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one more thing I kind of want to ask about that, Dan, and then I'll I'll kick it over to you is just about this idea. I heard Tom speaking to um, I think it was the guy who translated it into English. I think his name's Herman. And yeah, yeah. And Herman was basically saying that he wasn't sure it would ever really be a great idea for everything to become completely 100% take as needed, take, you know, take what you need, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And how, aside from using labor time calculation as just like a good unit of account, even if you aren't like charging people, quote unquote, using the means of consumption, just to know the labor inputs that are going towards things. Um, he was also saying that like it might not be such a good idea to have something like electricity be free just because it's like well you need to know kind of like what is going in you don't just want to be leaving everything on all of the time right and so i'm kind of i'm interested to know your thoughts about that because it's yeah i don't know i'm, I'm kind of not sure where my thinking at, is at on that at the moment because i would really like to say it seems like the most stable social form would just be take as needed but obviously there needs to be a certain amount of like especially on a finite planet right like a certain amount of um understanding where what you're consuming is coming from and labor time might not be the like be all end all of inputs that goes into any given product right but it certainly is a good place to kind of go, you know, you look at your communist receipt or whatever, and you go, oh, wow, a lot, there's a lot more that went into this than I thought, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, that's, you know, that's, as you say, that's where you start. So you can have other things that are limitations and those are political decisions, you know, uh, they're not, they're not objective. Uh, you, you can have all kinds of things. You can have environmental things. Uh, you know, there's no, I mean, you would rather that there be no uh, terrible waste in the river, right? You don't want that there. But there's no objective measure of like, like this is the this is the absolute minimum, or this is the you know this is the objective minimum amount of waste that can be in that river, or whatever you know. Yeah, like this isn't doing away with politics, right? It's not doing away with politics. That's the thing. Like you know, it's it's if if you're going to close down the factory that is putting waste in that river, that's a political decision. You know that has other consequences, right? So. Uh, or if you need them to do things in a different way, that has a string of different consequences. Those are all, that's politics. So the, the, the labor time accounting stuff is objective. It's saying, okay, what's the real production cost? And, you know, the, the labor time way is a good way to quantify that. There's other aspects to it. Uh, we have already released a, for the book, I mean, we've already released a, a kind of bullet points of what the chapter headings are and stuff. So I'm not giving, you know, any uh things away by saying that it's like we have stuff about economic rents in there which maybe will be a you know appall some people whatever uh, but when they see how it works i think it won't appall them i think they'll say okay yeah that's good um uh so there's other there's other things that need to be taken into account not just uh not just labor time but i do think that you know it's very important with the free allocation stuff this is my 
take at least that everything has to be totally accounted for. There can't be any talk of free allocation without accounting. So you cannot have, uh, you know, as, uh, from my perspective. Now, the consequences of doing that for different things are different. If you give away pencils for free, okay, it's, it's probably not going to have a terrible effect on the economy, right? But, um, but in principle, the idea should be you don't give away uh, anything uh, without it being totally accounted. And what that means is that, you know, just in a very practical sense, you've got things being produced and with the GIC, for people who don't know, everything that's produced and given away in the free sector is taken into account uh, through a sort of uh, deduction from the uh, from the um, uh, purchasing power of the labor tokens, right? So everything has to be paid for. So everything you're buying, if it's personal consumption or collective consumption, the two of them put together are total consumption and both are paid for, right? Through real, like they're all, they're, they're, you know, collective consumption are just deductions from real production, right? So you can't give away things that don't exist. I don't, like, this is just my opinion, so I'm not saying it's anyone else's, but I think, you know, the, the take, the take as needed thing, I think is, is always limited. You know, I think you're never in a position where it's actually take as needed. I think it's like, you've got production costs, right? And you're making products and you're saying, okay, we're going to allocate these for free, right? So you can, we can all take like up to 30 pencils a day for free. You might say that's the same thing as them being uh, ubiquitous, but it's not uh, because the, the pencil factory gets hit by lightning, one of the main ones, and uh, burns down. And suddenly the pencils are free, but there's a shortage. You know, suddenly, uh, okay, there, you, can take, you can take 30 of them, but actually there, there's none of them there. So uh, that doesn't, you know, so... What you have to do is you have to say it all has to be linked back through the FIC, and the fact that they're free now, whatever the good is, doesn't mean they'll be free tomorrow. It means if the factory was to burn down or something, what happens is they can be put. Now the price of them per unit has gone up, maybe you know, because maybe one of the more productive factories has burnt down, whatever. So what happens is they become something that's in the productive, non-free sector again. And everybody has to pay for them in labor tokens again. And then when you rebuild the factory, they go back to being free. You know, so there's it's a dynamic process. It's something that unwinds over time, and things become free. They might become paid for again, and then they become free again. You know, it's not something that you can ever say, okay, that's it, that's free forever. You know, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. I think it's... that's that's really fascinating. I've never actually really thought about it like that. And I suppose that is the like benefit to even if something is quote unquote like free, right? that's the benefit to having this unit of account is that like, well, you're always still going to know what it would cost. Right. And you right. know what it costs society too, um, at least in terms of labor. Right. I think that's kind of like one of the things about um, the Paracon stuff that kind of confuses me is how they try to add in all of these different things. And I think it's very laudable. Like I think research into like, how can we actually quantify say like ecological destruction per pencil or something like that is a really like laudable goal. But um, I do think that the simplicity of the labor time stuff is, I think, maybe its main um, value. Um, so, Dan, I guess I'll kick it over to you. I don't know if you had anything else on labor time stuff. Sure. Yeah, I wanted to try and um, pick up this idea of transition a little bit. And some of the things that really excited me about reading that book the first time was the ways in which they lay out some of the ways their new mode of production, their sort of proposal for a socialist mode of production, mirror some aspects of capitalist production, I suppose, and how that 
for me sort of proposes the possibility of like a smoother transition. Um, I don't know whether how much you've thought about those various ways in which the two forms mirror one another, I guess, whether that's something you're going to go into the book, whether um, that was as intriguing to you as it was to us, I think. Yeah, absolutely. The the, the mirror forms. Um, you know. Yeah, I think I may have stolen that phrase from you guys. I think you've been using that. And it, I read it today and it sort of stuck in my head as like a really good way of um, synthesizing right. that idea. Yeah, probably other people have also said this, you know, because it's it really jumps out to you like that. I remember listening to one of the, the podcasts you guys had and you were talking about this as, you know, the average, so the idea of the average social production time where it's like, you know, it's kind of because it's a because it's a fact, you know what I mean? Like, so you go to the thing, you produce the thing, and the sale you don't just you don't decide the sales price. So it's just kind of like, you know, that's it. You know, like you're uh, uh, you want to take part in the in the collective labor of the society. Okay, that's that's it. So it's kind of like this uh, in the same way that maybe people would say today, like uh, if you criticize capitalism, they'll say, oh, you're basically criticizing human nature. You know, you're basically criticizing. You're saying society is unfair to you. Like grow up, you know. And it's kind of like you'd have that a little bit in reverse, where people would be saying about the, you know, the socialist economy. Uh, you'd just sell them on, you know. It's um, everybody getting getting uh, equally compensated for participation in social labor. That's just, you know, it's common sense, and uh, you really need to grow up and, you know, stop this kind of, um, you know, silly complaining, looking for more than everyone else. Uh, um, so I think. Uh, you know, but that's the, that's the transformed social relations, and you can see that throughout the thing. Where, you know, uh, there's one good quote that they have. Um, oh yeah, actually, uh, abolition of the market is understood as its continued existence according to external appearance. Hmm. And you know, that's the kind of those are the kind of things that they that they drop during the in the book where they say, you know, it's not the fact that anything. You know, on the surface, the, the communist society looks very much like our society today in many ways. If you were walking around, you might not necessarily know there was anything that different going on. Um, but the social relations are totally different. So in other words, if you go in today to a shop and you say, okay, I'm going to buy a table in the, you know, whatever, um, in, in the shop and I'm going to bring it home, you know, through no fault of your own, you're just going to buy a table, right? But what you're doing is you are realizing the exploitation of labor that's happened already in the production process. And now the money changes hands and the money goes back to the producer of the table and he pays his employees and he keeps the thing and he buys a new uh, yacht or whatever, um, the guy who owns the factory. And, you know, and that's the thing. And as far as you're concerned, all you did was buy a table, you know, so it's like uh, it, it all just seems very uh, normal and, and natural and, and unavoidable. It couldn't be any other way. Uh, so the, the big difference, so like in the socialist economy, you go in, you buy the table and, uh, you know, you pay instead of the price that the specific firm sets, you, you pay the average social price and you bring the table home. Very similar experience. Uh, but the all of the producers in society who are working on making tables of so that, let's say that class of table, that, you know, that, that quality of table, that's set by the producers association. They're all equally getting uh, compensated in terms of their contribution to the social labor. So directly social labor, it's not indirectly, they're not waiting for the market to, to validate it and see if they're gonna get paid or not. They're already, they've been paid. 
that's the you know so in as you say like with the mirror forms i think it's really interesting you know on the surface it looks the same underneath the social relations are transformed um and so i think you know in many ways like that's much more palatable for people as well it's much more you you can get your head around it much better if you explain this than saying to people well there's going to be a planned economy and it'll work with an algorithm and you'll have to you know you'll be told what you make the algorithm will calculate the optimal plan and it'll tell you like to people that seems very uh you know it just yeah it just seems like um something very similar to wage labor so you'll go to work and your manager will tell you what to do i like the idea that you're pitching to people don't worry don't worry it's still like wage slavery you don't have to panic just like (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i mean uh... but of course you have all of these uh new freedoms and rights and chief among them being uh, the right to disposal and uh... the right to disposal so i think it's worth spending a moment on that like so the right to disposal you know gic talking about the right to disposal they're saying like okay there's you know there's a monopoly relation in in capitalism that Capitalism only works if the workers don't, like, you know, uh, decide what gets made. They, you can't go into your workplace and say, well, you know, I'm not going to do what the manager would like today. I'm going to do something else. I, I, I've decided, I, me and a few of the guys were thinking there might be a, a, an interesting pro, you know, project or product that we'll do. And, you know, it doesn't work like that. It has to be the right of disposal, the right to decide what gets made what goods and services are there has to be in the hands of the people that own everything, which is a small group of people. Um, and so the monopoly relation doesn't disappear in socialism. <clears throat> it changes. So it changes to the commune, the, to the, you know, whatever. In, it would have been the Paris commune in, 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 in France or whatever, and it'd be, you know, the same kind of idea for us. So it changes to society through its political democratic institutions they have the right of disposal, right? So the producers are there and they're making products and so on, but they're doing it, <clears throat> they're doing it at the pleasure of the, of the, uh, of the society, of the commune. And so there's no question of a firm that's very successful or something getting to, you know, buy politicians and pollute the river or something. It doesn't work like that. You know, the, the way it works is um, the society decides you, you get feedback uh, as to both in terms of demand, you know, are your products, do people like your products and so on, and also in terms of other kinds of things so people can make political decisions. So, yeah, like the right of disposal changes, and that changes a lot of, that changes the, the whole calculation as far as what gets made and why it gets made. You've set yourself the task of writing a book to try and popularise these ideas. I mean, one of the things I was going to ask of like about that process of um, you sort of described this, the proposal in the GIC book as being plausible. Um, I was just thinking about that process of like writing to try and popularize ideas. I don't know how you're finding that process, that aspect of the book. It's popularizing the idea, we hope, but it's also like, there's also, it's also adding a lot. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that are, that are brilliant in GIC and there's a lot of things that they just didn't focus on because their focus was very, very, very narrow. They were just saying, okay, we want to say, what are the preconditions for the productive part of the, of the economy? You know, um, and you know, what would be the fundamental rules that that would work under? So they weren't talking about like, uh, you know, how would the, let's say, you know, uh, say, like, say goods that are not, uh, say property or something, right? Goods that are like not, you know, 
um, the, what they're what they're talking about is goods that are reproduce the reproducible sort of uh, the example they give is like a I think a chair factory or a shoe factory I think, in the book, and so they're looking at a very specific at that kind of economic activity and they're saying how does you know how do these firms reproduce themselves, but there's yeah there's obviously a lot of things like you know GIC does not provide a solution for. You know, there's one apartment that's in the beautiful, it's in the center of Vienna, it's overlooking whatever, uh, you know, the most beautiful part. And there's another property that's the same labor time cost and it's, you know, way down the country, nobody wants to live there somewhere that, you know, whatever, uh, far away from any amenities and so on. So, you know, they're focused on one very specific thing and they're not talking about international trade. They're not talking about all kinds of other things, um, internet, you know, um, how the, how the socialist economy can relate to, let's say, these other things. Um, and so that's a lot of extra stuff we wanted to take on as far as what makes sense from their point of view, from what from from the things that they've set out. So I think we've, we have stuck to that and been faithful to them and to what they would, I think, what they would have seen, you know, as being a, a faithful extension of what, they're, what they've said. Um, but yeah, as, as far as popularizing it, you know, uh, I really hope so. I mean, I hope uh, it can become something that people at least can say, okay, well, I can, you know, uh, that, you know, this book would convince people at least so far, at least that they could say, well, you know, I could see it. Um, but obviously that's only a small part of the battle, you know. But I think it is still important, you know. Like if one of the main things you, you get from people is, yeah, they're very unhappy, you know, there's a lot of problems and they can see that... Uh, you know, it's not just, it's not just growing inequality or whatever. Like, there's a, you know, people have really tough situations when you speak to people, and uh, and you know, it's not that a lot of people wouldn't want to completely change things, but there is a big pessimism there that it's really possible. And I think my opinion is, yeah, that a lot of what's out there at the moment in terms of uh, the different ideas, to me, they they don't seem plausible. So maybe to other people, they don't as well. And uh, I think. This this project is really uh, really important, you know, because hopefully you can start to set that right. I think one one thing I just want to say on that is that this is definitely the least scary of the uh, proposals. You know what I mean? Because it's like still like obviously the kind of like nightmare of the Soviet Union is kind of like leaving people's brains, but like putting forward a proposal for socialism or communism or a classless society or whatever that isn't just like give it over to the bureaucrats or give it over to a very large computer to figure everything out for you. It's going to be like Amazon, but socialist. You know what I mean? Like this one is at this proposal is, uh, I don't know. It's, it's eminently not scary if that makes sense. Yeah. I think it makes total sense. Um, you know, there's also the, there's also people have a considerable kind of suspicion of, uh, and you know, some of this is justified and some of it isn't, but there's a considerable suspicion of, uh, of the state as such and the state's role in the economy, you know, that, oh, well, you know, the private sector is very good at producing new goods. Maybe the state wouldn't be so good at it and this kind of thing. Um, or let's say state state companies that are operating in quota systems like it would have been in the USSR. Um, so, uh, you know, there's definitely an aspect to that, the dynamism, you know, the incentives. Uh, there's, there's certain things, obviously, look, I mean, Capitalism works in many ways. That's the thing that people on the left have to face up to. Capitalism works well in many ways. Like it's, it doesn't work well for you, but it works well. 
like in many ways, in the sense of it solves a lot of problems that, and the problems it doesn't solve, it buries them, uh, you know, and again, maybe that'll end up, you know, ending all life on the planet through climate change or whatever, but, but like, you know, within, within the, within that paradigm of the kind of, you know, of a, of a, of an, of a very complicated social system, um, it is able to organize production, organize the distribution of labor, reallocate labor constantly to where it needs to be in terms of making profits, obviously not in terms of meeting need. If you can't pay for a product, you, you, you starve as far as, as far as capitalism as such is concerned. Um, and so, uh, you know, it's, so the socialist economy would need to take all of that on board. And I think that's what GIC do to a big extent. They say, you know, we would need all of these, like all of the kind of good characteristics in terms of, um, in terms of being able to create new use values in response to demand and all that kind of stuff. And also, uh, you would need the, obviously, uh, to get rid of all of the bad uh, things. It, like, to, to give you an example, so, you know, if you have, people might say, well, you know, just have market socialism, right? You just have kind of firms and they'll produce and they'll all be cooperatives. Um, you know, but there's big problems there. Like, uh, and you can see how, when you think of it in dynamics, when you think of it in terms of systems, you can see how things can easily lead back to capitalism very quickly. Uh, if you have uh, firms that, for example, you know, you guys are, are all selling um, uh, computers there and I'm also a computer firm. We're making, selling computers. Um, you know, what will happen is that because we all have different levels of productivity and so on, we sell them on the market at the market price let's say, right, um, which we come to know. Uh, that means we all have different labor inputs into our production processes. Uh, we transfer those values. Uh, you know, some of the, the, the firms are going to do very well. Other ones are going to make less profit. Other ones are going to make no profit at all and go bankrupt. And, so, and that's happening all the time. And what you very quickly get is this kind of um, exponential distribution where some people do very well, other people do very badly, and other people are in the middle. And then it's just a matter of time, very short time before the people who have done very, very well uh, can take control politically and can buy off anyone that's against them and can, can set up production, proper capitalist production for profit. Like capitalism is the logical endpoint of commodity production. It's, you know, it's the thing of you can not just buy things, but you can buy people and you can make them do what you want. And so... You need a system like GIC, which is adaptive, is really good in terms of all of the characteristics, but also it gets rid of that. You know, it says, okay, if you go to work, if all of us do that exact same thing, we all break even. Uh, and so the only basis on which to proceed is a cost even production basis. Um, and then our the, the production that takes place is based on uh, social need rather than on uh, on profitability. Now that brings up a whole lot of other things about incentives and different things, which we deal with, you know, but, uh, yeah, but that's the basis of it, you know? Um, so you guys remember the cybernetics talk, uh, this purpose of a system is what it does, right? So, <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking uh, that as you were talking. 
it's, you know, it's that. And it's like, you could talk about the other things that the kind of Soviet type economies as well, at least as they were constituted, at least as they were understood, like those systems, you know, regardless of what they said they wanted to do, that wasn't what they were. Uh, what they were was systems that ended up going back to capitalism, going back to a proper commodity economy, not one where you had like regulated wages and a planning system and stuff that wasn't going to be viable. You know, so for me, either it's kind of like one or the other. You can have a you can have a commodity economy that will just go to capitalism, uh, or you can have an economy where all that's gotten rid of, and there's no longer a labor market. There's no longer commodities. It's just cooperative labor, and um, and and that's it. You know, I'm really glad you bring up um, uh, systems theory and um, viable systems model to some extent because it's been we've been skirting around it a bit. You talked a little bit about feedback earlier on as being an aspect of um, uh, the GIC proposal, um, and we're talking about obviously like the viability of capitalism in some respects. I'm sort of wondering how much. Um, you see in the GIC model that's directly uh, a model designed to ensure the viability of that form of socialist economy? Because I feel like they put a lot of things in um, that are all about how do we maintain this? How do we, exactly sort of exactly what you're saying, to prevent that slippage back into capitalism, I suppose. Um, how do you prevent people from uh, defrauding the system and this kind of thing? So. Right. I guess, how much is systems theory and the viable system model informing your reading of this book, I guess? Or how how much do they overlap? Yeah, they overlap heavily, like you say. You know, it's a very cybernetics-friendly uh, text. All the different aspects of it. Like, for me, the, the centerpiece in terms of cybernetics is the is the factor of individual consumption. You know, it's a, a really uh, fantastic uh, mechanism for being able to, as we spoke about before, like, dynamically change like real consumption in response to um, whatever's going on in the productive economy. So, um, you know, uh, and, this, you, you know, like we spoke about as well, the the, the dynamism in terms of, um, you know, the transition and stuff like that. So, yeah, there's a lot. It's very, very cybernetics friendly. Yeah, yeah I, do feel, I do feel like the, I hadn't really thought about it in those terms before until I hear you say it, this idea of the individual consumer and also like keeping the productive units in place as well sort of feels like it's, meeting the variety requirements sort of like maintaining um what's the phrase sufficient variety requisite variety um which is contributing to what makes that model so much more viable i guess and some of the things which undermined maybe um top-down planning that we've had in the past it's this idea of lack of variety in those kind of systems i don't know whether you know much about i don't really know anything about soviet planning and that kind of thing and yeah, I mean, it's been part of research, actually. It's part of my research here, uh, sort of by accident, <laughs> you know, so okay. like, uh, because, um, yeah, you speak to people here. I mean, you know, every everyone who's uh, who's old here lived as adults in the in the uh, Soviet Union. So, um, but, you know, it's very interesting to speak to people about how it was. But the first thing that 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 strikes me when i speak to older people and my russian is you know i've been here for a few years so my russian's not too bad uh is like uh you know when you ask people well what was it like to work then let's say as opposed to work now you know you ask somebody who's uh, who's got a job here and very often the first thing will be complete bewilderment what do you mean and then when you try to explain more no because it was socialist then and now it's capitalist They'll just say oh, it was the same. 
came into work and my manager told me what to do. And I did it and I got paid and I went home. You know, like, um, I'm not saying it was, you know, the same in every respect, but definitely a lot of the things that I think uh, people miss here are, you know, good, like universalist welfare state, which there was, which is still partially there, but it's a lot of it's gone now. And, um, and uh, job security, you know, you were guaranteed employment. There was no question really that you could be unemployed. Uh, and in fact, you know, that was a problem in a sense that it was, it was so easy to, to get some job that, uh, that there was, you know, it was, it was kind of, they had a labor market, but it didn't really work. Um, yeah. So what was your original question? You know, I've sort of wandered I, off. I, yeah. I can't even remember. Just, I would think I was just alluding to the general parallels between, um, the the GIC proposal and the viable systems model, and I think to some extent you've answered that question of like, yeah, yes, obviously there is a parallel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I think, uh, yeah, highly, highly, uh, you know, they really go together very, very easily. I think so. The combination of the two things of the, as I was saying, the the, the the factor of individual consumption and this kind of public ledger, right? So the public ledger is uh, where you have uh, all of the. The, the purchases and the, and the real goods flows are taken together uh, and are updated on this ledger so they can be seen, right? So all of this together. Now, in an economy, that's a huge amount of information. So you say, well, what good is it to anyone? But this is where the cybernetics comes in because you can see what should be happening according to sort of, uh, uh, you know, plans that, uh, that, that would be... Uh, put forward by producers and would be agreed with society as far as what they would like to do. And then you can see what's really happening and you can make some kind of comparisons within limits. This is a good thing about cybernetics where you sort of say, okay, that's a system, that's a viable system. There's, there's limits as to what should be going on. If there are problems, if there are things going outside of the sort of uh, viability zone and we're not happy with that, there can be things put in place where, you know, you've had this idea of the algodonic signal you probably remember from beer where it's like, you know, okay, that's like a pain signal, um, you know, and then that's that's a good reason to follow up on that. Uh, and then you want to structure the, the VSM stuff in such a way that that's happening kind of automatically. Um, so it doesn't, you know, there's, you'd, you'd, one thing you really don't want to get into, I think, in this kind of, when you're talking about systems that are like, should be self-generative, like an economic system, you don't want to have like a bureau of a bureau of investigations for everything. Where you know this, like ah, the algodonic signal, and send send guys around to number three there and see what's you know. It should be like emerging from the social relations that uh, you know that um, that for a start, people don't want to trigger the algodonic thing, and if they do, it's bad for them in a sense of it, it's it's inconvenient or it, it, it hinders them in their activity within the economy. And therefore they themselves want to call down to the, to the you know, to let's say society as such, to the democratic institutions or their agents and say, hey, could we fix this thing? Because, you know, this is a problem. Um, so that's the kind of, you want to look at it that way. That, that actually reminds me a lot of, there's a bit in one, I think it was in Diagnosing the System where Beer talks about like, 
one of the main reasons that workers tend to be afraid of auditors is because they kind of have no idea what they're doing. They have no idea really what they're up to and why they're coming around telling them to engage in production control, right? And like, you know, you need to be producing less, you need to be producing more. And you kind of saw this, I guess, a bit in Chile as well when he was working with Allende. Like some of the different bureaucrats just felt like this very alien force. And so that that I kind of that reminds me a lot of what you're saying of also just like the kind of demystifying of the entire economy is definitely kind of mirrored in the kind of rule of beery and cybernetics of like, everybody needs to understand what each thing does. And it isn't like their fault if they don't, right? Like he has this thing in brain of the firm about help needing to be a name and a face, right? Like you need to understand where you can go when there are problems. And once every, once the economy is kind of demystified, especially with this unit of account that just eminently makes sense of what it's trying to tell you, then everything suddenly seems a lot less scary, right? Like if somebody does come around and it's like, hey, I'm from the council of like heavy industry and you need to be producing more of X, then you're kind of like, oh, okay, that makes sense because I just open up the general ledger, right? And it's like, oh, I see, we are running low on, you know, right. X, whatever it might be. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, you know, you want to distinguish between, on the one hand, running low on X, which is a totally normal thing. And on the other hand, you know, where it's very clear with the inputs and the outputs have to balance always in GIC. It's very clear that there are things being stolen, for example, you know, so you have to separate the things as to, you know, what category of kind of incident are you dealing with? You don't want to lump everything in as if it's things being stolen or, uh, you know, or assume um, that there's some kind of, uh, you know, really negative things going on where actually it's just the normal running. And I think that's, that's a big problem in planned economies where because a lot, you know, not all, but a lot of the time with the with the quota systems that were there and stuff, because the quotas were very harsh and very demanding and, and the you know the uh, um, and the communications were not great, uh, the kind of problems you would have is you know assumptions that there were you know bad things going on all the time when there weren't you know like the, the kind of assumption that there must be dishonesty happening because. Uh, this isn't what they were told to do, uh, you know, they're doing something else. So, yeah, I think it's very important that um, that the, if you're going to look at these kind of structures, you want to make sure that th- things are broad enough, general enough, clear enough that you can separate those categories. And I think, yeah, the VSM does a great job. In that. Yeah, also just in the levels of recursion as well, right? It's like, oh, I understand how the next recursion up for me works because it works very similar to, you know, the way my industry right. works or whatever. Yeah. Dan, you have anything else on cybernetics? Well, I mean, um, one thing that you've just made me realize is that um, what's happening in the question of um, ensuring viability in the GIC model, I suppose, is that you're, you're checking for viability in all the subunits so that you don't have this sort of like build up of viability in the entire system. Does that, is that a fair description yeah, of totally. what you were saying kind of thing as opposed as opposed perhaps to like top-down planning where you don't have that fail safe i guess absolutely i think so and i think you know the um this great idea of the systems within systems is that you can have uh, uh if the, again if the social relations are right and if things are set up in a way that that kind of makes sense for this you can have it that uh it is it's something that's self-regulated so that you have let's say Maybe it's in the interest of the higher recursion to hold you to account. You know, it's in their actual interest in some way, and so they would they you know they want to make sure. And the higher recursion can just be like, say, a bunch of firms, a production group, so called. You know, 
and they just want to make sure that none of the firms are doing something stupid, right? So they they kind of check that and make sure that the machine is that machine working. Yeah, it's okay. Are you sure? And you know, it uh, it looks like there might be a problem, and they preempt the problem, but because it's in their own interest, you know, this is the kind of thing you want, and that's I think again VSM, yeah, it's really good for that. Um, you. Uh, shared an article with us that's going to be published at the end of the month, I think you said, yeah. on uh, social object viability strategy. Um, and I know, you, is that correct? Yeah. And I know you've done a bit of a deep dive with Tom O'Brien, um, so I don't really want to dig it too much into that article. But um, one of the things that was really thrilling to me as I was reading through it, or really tantalized me, I suppose, was that you sort of start off with this um, idea that there are... Um, They've been developed, obviously they would have been, although Jack and I have just read a little bit of beer and stuff like that. So our engagement with systems theory has been quite, um, it's been at that starting point. Um, and you sort of propose there are ways it's been updated a little bit. wonder whether, without going through the whole article, whether um, you wouldn't mind going into some of those sort of things that you're bringing into or looking to bring into the viable systems model to update it, I suppose, especially this idea of trajectory. Yeah, totally. Um, so... Where the where the BSM is coming from is they're saying like okay, uh, you've got uh, you've got these recursions, and these systems are viable, right? So they, they, usually beer falls back on this kind of stuff about the human body and kind of not metaphors because he actually does literally mean like this is a biological system. It's the same as other systems, and he's saying okay, you've got a brain, you've got a heart, and so on, and they're performing functions, and within their own environment, they're viable, like you know, and they have developed to be viable. And uh, you're, you know, you're a viable system. So it's systems within systems, and they're all viable within their environments. And uh, you say, okay, but how does it like obtain this kind of uh, these modes of action, these courses of action that it can take in order to keep you viable, right? So again, something very simple: it gets very hot. You start sweating to cool yourself down. Like you don't have to think about it. It's it's a course of action that your body knows to take, uh, and. And it will keep you warm if it gets very cold. You know, it'll it'll use energy to keep you warm and so on. Uh, and uh, so, you know, that's the kind of question as far as well. You know, how does that work? And where does that come from? And is it of any use to us? So, in the in the article, I just talk a bit about viability theory, which is a little bit different to what Beer was talking about. He was management cybernetics, which is uh, or management science. I think he called it too. But it's all closely related. So this is derivative of that stuff. Um, and in there's a book called Viability Theory, New Directions, which is about 10 years old. And in that book, uh, this guy, uh, Alvin, I think his name is, uh, the, the sort of core of that book is talking about the idea of a uh, what he calls an inertial trajectory, right? So he says, there, he says that a viable system has developed these kinds of ways of, of, of dealing with problems. It de- let's assume it has developed some already. And what it will do is it will go through its uh, it will go through its environment and it will uh, as it's going through its environment, it will use the what he calls regulons, regulatory actions, right? That it has developed already in order to uh, self-regulate. Right. So but what happens when it when you know something happens that it doesn't expect um or hasn't dealt with before or hasn't dealt with before in the same way it needs something different and what he calls it is a heavy regular he says okay when you get to that point where there's some kind of crisis let's say um 
something you're not for experienced with uh, or less experienced with, it takes a new course of action uh, based on the control variables that it has available to it and taking that new course of action, it sort of uh, changes its conception of itself so that uh, its inertial trajectory by doing that has now changed. So we assume that it didn't die or whatever, and it's still a viable system. And and now it knows it can do this other thing, you know, to maybe changing one of its control variables in a way it hadn't done before. And so now it's got this new control action and it's using this to go through its environment. And so this is kind of, uh, you know, breaking down what Beer was talking about with autopoiesis, where he says, okay, well, this is an autopoetic control strategy, right? And uh, it's it's making it up. It's a sort of evolutionary control, control strategy. It's making it up as it goes along. And so just thinking about it in terms of... Uh, in terms of uh, social objects that we're kind of maybe interested in, you know, we could ask the question, well, if, uh, you know, if we're interested in, in owning a social object, in, in organizing one, there might be different kinds of, like I, I, I talk about in, in the article, two types of uh, uncertainty that we're interested in. The first kind of uncertainty is, uh, can the, is, you know, what happens when you take an action, like what's the result? Okay, and I, I argue you need some kind of model of like what you think, if you take an action, what do you think happens, right? And that's a kind of probabilistic model. And then the second thing is, uh, the second kind of uncertainty is, is the social object, your specific social object that you were dealing with, this specific viable system with its specific control variables, you know, is that an easy action for, for it to take, for it specifically to take? And that's also something that needs to be modeled. And so by doing that, um, what you can arrive at is this heavy regulon. And heavy regulon is the action that you do choose. So this is the big claim of the viability theory book. They say, it's not just any control action that you choose. It's the control action which has a large enough magnitude to deal with the problem. So you've changed your control variables one of them to, or more than one, and that's your control action. It has to be large enough to up to a certain level of confidence, certain level of probability, do you think, to solve the problem? And also, second condition, it has to have a rate of change, which is uh, the slowest rate of change possible to the control variables. And the idea is simply that uh, for actual, for real viable systems, uh, making changes that are slow and small is easier than making changes that are fast and big. And so that's, and, and so what I propose basically is to put all of this into a control loop so that what the social action, what the social um, object does is, is it says, okay, take an action, uh, apply these criteria at the end of the process, you have, uh, a new uh, understanding of what the social object can do, that feeds back into updating the, without going into the statistical stuff, that feeds back into updating what it thinks it can do. And therefore, over time, you've, the social object is changing both of those uncertainties. It's changing what, you know, what it thinks it can do, and also it's changing uh, its understanding of what happens when it does take that kind of action. And so that's sort of 
That's it. As short as I can say it, that took about 10 yeah, minutes. Yeah, no, that's a brilliant <laughs> summation. Um, I look forward to seeing that uh, article published. I really enjoyed reading it. Um, also, you've given us, I think, another book to try and track down. What did you say it was called? Uh, uh, viability Theory in New Directions. Yeah. Viability now, Theory in New Directions. He's got some economic stuff in there that's very, uh, you know, uh, not so sure about it all, but um, oh. the uh, but uh, on the on the uh, on the cybernetic stuff, it's good. It's worth looking at. A lot of maths, uh, but, uh, you know, the set theory oh, stuff. Okay. Maybe maybe we'll leave it for you, people like you who understand the maths. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> but uh, no, it's it's it is worth a look. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, it's something I noticed with a lot of these cybernetics people. Actually, uh, I've noticed this before. Some of them have ropey politics. Some of them have very, uh, you know, politics that I'm not so sure about at all. Um, I wonder where that but, comes uh, from. <laughs> yeah, I don't know because beer maybe was very, like Mecca- pretty good. Yeah. You know? It seems like if you're designing systems that like can be, I don't know, like you're designing systems of control that aren't just openly fascist. It seems like if you're actually trying to come to a theory of autonomy, it's like, hey, you can have bad yeah, politics. I don't know. <laughs> it's very strange. But, um, anybody who's looked into this stuff will know exactly what I mean. Um, one, one question I had about this article that um, I, re- I really found really, really refreshing, and I'm really looking forward to seeing it again, to seeing it published. Um, is it seems like when you frame this question of organizing and of creating a viable social object, whether you want to call it a party or just a movement or something like that, like a working class movement, right? Like, it seems like once you frame things in a cybernetic way like this, using viability theory, that it really gets away from this question, well, from the questions that leftists always, you know, spend endless time arguing about. And it almost makes it seem like a lot of them don't really, they're not the right questions to be asking, right? And I mean, like, Dan and I have talked about how the question of reform or revolution might not necessarily be a question that is framed in exactly the best way. But this also seems like it gets around, framing things like this, like it gets around even talking about, like, should I be a, a Leninist? Should I be a Kautskyist? Should I be like a Maoist or something like that? It seems like it's, it almost just says that to a certain extent, that is not the question you want to be asking, because at every opportunity, once you've gotten a movement to a certain point, you need to kind of stop holding to these ideological like dead weights and just kind of being like, well, what is the most reasonable uh, action that any of us can take as a movement that is going to ensure viability in the long run? And it doesn't seem like you necessarily get that with a lot of different left veins because it just kind of seems like, well, I'm a, you know, X-ist, right? So like, I can only do this and I can only think like this. And it's like, well, things things don't necessarily work like that in the real world, you know? So if you want to build a viable system, you got to be thinking about it a bit differently. Right. Yeah, really well said. Uh, I think, uh, you know, what I what I hope to do with this paper and um, an and idea is to take into account that, yeah, like, you shouldn't just be doing the same things you've been doing because that's not actually what a viable system does. If you do that, you you will actually end up in non-viability because you're in an, a real environment um, and you're going through it. So if you're not adapting... Uh, and again, when we say viability, I just want to make the point. When we say viability, we don't just mean like physiological being, you know, like having a political party with more than one person is a, is viable. We mean like, you know, we, we can set viability to what we need it to be, right? So we can say... Okay, the viability limits are, you know, the rate of change of growth of this political party will be, it will grow by 10% every year. And if that's not happening, it's not viable. If you want, you can set that to be your, in this model, you know, or whatever, you know. Um, 
So, uh, but I think every political project, whatever it is, or any social object for that matter, whatever it is, would um, has some criteria of success, has some raison d'etre, has some idea of what they think they where they want to be in a year or in five years or whatever. And if that's true, then as you say, they should be interested in first of all, uh, you know, what actually works um, in terms of you can do benchmarking, you can make a model, you can say what do we think works from our own experience. What do we think works from looking at examples from other social objects and so on? And then secondly, what I do is I take into account in this model that I understand that if you're a political type of social object, political type, uh, political party, social movement, whatever, that you can't just do anything, that you're, you're constrained by the fact that you are that social object and that certain things are reasonable for you and other things are not reasonable. And other things might be on the borderline between reasonable and unreasonable. And that's what we quantify here and make that into a model of the self-conception and uh, forward progress of the of the uh, of the social object. So those two have to align. You know. And can I can I press you on that actually a little bit and ask yeah. if you've done much thinking about what certain parameters could be for a political movement for viability? Uh, uh, in terms of um, the, the kind of first or second criteria, and then first, I think in terms of things that work, or in terms of a particular type of how it sees itself. Uh, well, I, su- I suppose both, because if uh, just in terms of my thinking of like, say, if your like main criteria was we just want to grow, we just want to grow, that's it, we need to grow at all costs. I don't know necessarily if that was like your main criteria for viability. If that would, it would go somewhere certainly. Like if you're able to continue to grow ten percent, that'd be great. But like presumably there would need to be other things that would help maintain the structures. Like maybe I don't know rules or something or like laws. I don't know. Does well, that make sense? What I suggest uh, in in the thing is 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 a, is a probabilistic model. So you can make this uh, with state machines and with. Uh, 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 flowcharts where you just say, okay, if this happens and this happens, then we think this happens. If this happens or this happens and this happens, then we think maybe this happens and you assign percentages to the things on top and it flows down through and you can kind of estimate, okay, you know, and you can add time delays and you could add different things if you, if you want. But the, but the main idea would be that in terms of that side of it, where we're saying, okay, well, what, what do we think works? And, you know, that's defined by what you what works is defined by the, the what you assert to be viability. That's completely your own choice. So as you say, if you if you assign viability to be growing by ten percent a year, that's what you will try to that's what you will try to do in terms of the model. But uh, as you say, that will lead you somewhere. It will lead you to that conception of viability. It will lead you to actions that that can work for that. But it may very well not be where you want to go. So you have to be. Uh, you know, you have to be very clear as, uh, to lay out your viability uh, requirements in a way that makes sense. And uh, so, yeah, that's that's how you handle it. So you handle it through this through, through making a model where you have uh, um, you have uh, two two different parameters, basically two two classes of parameters. One is strategic orientation, which is a kind of self understanding of the social object. You know the self-understanding of a, an anarchist collective versus the self-understanding of the board of directors of a commercial bank going to be different, right? What what makes sense to them will be different, uh, the kind of actions and so on. For one, it will seem totally absurd. For another, it will seem the merest common sense. Uh, and so um, uh, that's one. And then the other is environmental factors in general. Okay, so there might be 
one example I give in the paper is like press hostility, where you say, okay, the media is super hostile towards us. And, you know, we estimate it with this probability that that's true um, at this point. And, you know, um, and, and different kind of environmental things. Those are things that you can affect potentially by your actions, but they're not endogenous to your social organization. So, um, so they're not going to be something that, uh, you know, those are things you can, you can change, but uh, they're a different classification. So that's how it's broken down like that. I mean, I mean, the one thing that I was sort of thinking about, well, what really fascinated about this process was this idea of um, strategic orientation and just sort of incorporating into the idea of, or the, the model of a social object um, its own self-conceptions and sort of like thinking of it the way that it conceives of itself and what it intends to do as a sort of limiting factor in some ways like we can't it's sort of some of the bounds for the social object are set by um, how it feels about itself and how it is going to it intends to operate in the world and if it gave up those um, strategic orientations it would cease to be itself I suppose it would cease to be viable in the way that you've described it as self-selecting viability or self-defining viability I guess um, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's very well said. So it's like, you know, for a certain social object, particular actions are going to be really difficult, you know. Um, and in fact, some specific actions will be completely, you know, totally ruled out for a certain object. They'll say, you know, this would solve all of these problems. Uh, certain, you know, let's say left wing organization that uh, makes a huge uh, turn you know, uh, to the right, let's say, and all of its problems and media hostility, everything, they're all solved. But the organization can't do that, you know. Even just from, it doesn't matter how you feel about it, just from a viability perspective. It it would be such a huge variance. It would be so many standard deviations from from its mean, historical recorded uh, uh, conception of itself in that parameter that there's just no way it could do it. It would be, like, impossible. And that's what we try to account for there. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I speak for hopefully both Dan and I when I say that this is some hugely exciting stuff. And again, it's very refreshing. Um, it's easy, very easy to get caught down in the weeds of like, um, you know, like I was saying about just uh, wanting to fall into one ideology because it's the thing that you think is going to work. And realistically, like if you take the class struggle as seriously as it should be and you say, you know, uh, this is maybe the only thing that's going to save us and like our planet, then it's very easy to just fall into a mindset of like, so the ideology that I have is the one that everyone must have. And if you don't have it, you're an idiot because this is the most important thing on the planet. And I think that this is a really refreshing way to kind of get around that. And it's so funny to me, I was kind of cracking up when I was reading your article because I was just like, it's this simple. It's kind of, I mean, it's not simple, but it's like, oh, you just need to be like thinking about it and like making the most like viable option. It's like, oh man, all right. That makes sense. Like once you actually lay out these parameters as you do and see it laid out in front of you, like this is what a lot of organizations think that they're doing, but it becomes very clear that they're just not. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this is interesting. It's even, you could even see how sometimes it's part of like the, uh, it's like part of the ritual, uh, you know, it's part of how the social object views itself, that it pretends to, you know, be very receptive to change and stuff like that, where you can see if you analyze it over the, you know, uh, over, you know, Let's say it's possible to objectively analyze something in terms of uh, self-conception. Okay, you could say it's difficult, but you know, someone standing outside the organization would be able to say, okay, have their positions changed on A, B, and C in the last thirty years, uh, and by how much? Yeah, you can see it's theater. You know, in many cases, it's like there's social objects are 
once social objects get into an inertial trajectory, they're pretty, they're set, you know, and I think the reason they get set is because they don't even know themselves that that's, that that's really the case. You know? um, so uh, Tom was suggesting, uh, you know, you should do this on some of these like kind of more micro groups, you know, it would be fun to see uh, some of the like sects and stuff like that, but I don't know, <laughs> like, uh, that sounds, I guess, that could be <laughs> yeah, and maybe they would be offended by that. So <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to upset anyone. But, yeah. That's like, I've told this story before on the show, but out here where I live on one end of the high street, every Saturday, there's like, I think it's socialist appeal is selling newspapers. And at the other end of the high street, it's like socialist worker or something like that. And it's just like, yeah. <laughs> it's like this doesn't seem to be like the best uh, use of our energy, like competing socialist newspaper sales, but yeah <laughs> you're right you're right all right well um thanks again for coming on man this is really really exciting stuff and we'll include links to everything um where can people find you by the way i know you're active on twitter yeah i guess just twitter i mean i don't have any websites so. okay right on cool well we look forward to seeing more stuff and we're really looking forward to that book coming out so uh until next time man yeah great nice talk to you guys The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more commie discussion. Till next time. Whoa.